Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rapport Diamond podcast. Um, we're very lucky and, and thrilled to have with us um, a, a special guest from um, De Beers in, this, um, in these uh, extraordinary times, I think. Um, so I want to welcome um, Stephen Lucier, who is the Executive Vice President for Consumer and Brands at De Beers. Hi, Stephen, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, or morning, it depends on where you are, I guess. Yeah, we're in the evening, um, early evening, but um, thanks for joining us and good to um, speak with you. And also with us today is David Prager, who's the Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs at De Beers. Welcome, David, and thanks. thank you for joining us. Thanks, Avi, thanks for having us. So, as I said, it, it really is um, extraordinary times. Firstly, how, how are you both and, and how have you personally adjusted in this COVID-19 um, crisis that we're experiencing? Well, I guess David and I are probably in much the same boat and that um, we're both in, in London and we're both locked down. I guess now, what is it, our fourth week, David? And it's uh, yeah. it's an extraordinary experience because you sort of mix some of what seems like normalcy within this extreme abnormal situation that we're in you know it's funny what things you you miss there are some things that i tell you i i'm not sure i will miss once it's over which is you seem to work endless hours because you sit down at breakfast time and you find you're still sitting <laughs> in your desk on a video and the yeah. dinner time and you think geez what happened but um i mean you really do miss the social connection with people and i think it reminds you a little bit of how important engaging with people you know is as part of the human existence and i'll be pretty happy when we can venture back out into the into the world of real people one of the things to think that um, will come out of that is that we're all having the same experience i think i'm now two months working from home so i have the same experience that um, each day sort of it's longer and longer and, and you kind of rush into work um, with the, the key is to keep some sort of routine, I think, going. I do think, Abby, we've, we've gotten a bit of an insight into what it must like be like to be an astronaut. You're on your own for an extended <laughs> period of time and every minute of your day is scheduled if you're, if you're working. Because if it's not, there's no opportunity to just go down to the coffee bar and have a, a casual right, catch-up right. with someone. Uh, right. If it's not scheduled, it's not happening. So it's yeah. been uh, it's been an experience. But I think we're also just grateful, obviously, that we're okay and um, just watching with fascination on the, like the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And so, how how does that extend to the to the greater De Beers group? You know, what, what percentage of the De Beers employees are able to work remotely? And bearing in mind that the vast majority are employed at your mining operations. Um, how many are just at home, not able to work? Yeah, you, you're right, Abby. I mean, obviously, we've got people spread across the world and across the value chain from exploration through to mining, sorting, uh, all the way through to uh, retail. In between, a lot of corporate functions, obviously, that sit in offices. But on the mining side, um, many of our mining operations uh, have had paused to make sure that we were aligned with uh, government regulations on uh, lockdowns in various countries. And as we've made sure that we've got in place appropriate protocols to make sure we're keeping our people safe and creating safe environments in which they can work, those operations are now slowly beginning to reopen, albeit at a 
lower level of production and with a lower level of employees to reduce density at the operation. But we are seeing, even for people who can't work from home, people start uh, to come back to operations now, which is great to see because obviously uh, you've been, Avi, to some of the mining operations. Those mining operations really provide a lifeblood and are central to the services provided to communities, not just uh, making sure we're paying a wage to our employees so that they can provide in the community, but those mining operations provide services to communities that uh, those communities depend on. Mm-hmm. But then obviously, and Stephen can talk to this in his retail realm, but clearly in the in the retail space, uh, lockdowns persist primarily in the West, and that's very challenging. Yeah, I think, David, that's part of the challenge in the downstream business of De Beers, we're like in two parallel universes. One lockdown, really pretty much fully, if you look across uh, the big markets of the U.S. or India uh, or, or in Europe, where most all of our retail partners, uh, let alone our own stores, you know, the, the many thousands of our retail partners in those markets are, are largely closed. And our teams are, in effect, working from home. Fortunately, there's quite a lot of work to do to be ready for uh, when lockdown eases. And so uh, people are, are indeed busy, but in a different environment. We're, at, we're in the East. Actually, China has reopened, and some of the Asian markets never never closed through that period. So, you know, there it's, I'm going to say business is normal, but, you know, it's a new normal. So it's not the old normal. Business is normal now is being open and running your operations, but in an environment where you know, the virus is still present, hasn't disappeared. And so you, you mm-hmm. operate it in a different way. But uh, our challenge, of course, then is being, you know, half of our brain focused on on the lockdown and the other half focused on making sure that uh, that which is open can run effectively with all the support it needs, not only within its own market, but from people all over the world who are in various states of lockdown. Yeah, well, well I, I mean, I would imagine that the, the biggest challenge in resuming operations would come at the mining side. Um, I, you know, I, mean, I understand that, you know, when you put a, a mine on care and maintenance to restart operations, it's not like just flipping a switch. So how quickly can you come out of that reduced operational um, mode on the, uh, in the mining, uh, at your mining operations? Yeah, you're right, Avi. It's it's not like flipping a switch. First of all, I mean, uh, there are probably two things that work in our favor as we do this. The first is that um, we've been planning uh, as a business and as a leadership team for for downturns in the economy whenever they might have arisen. We had no specific insight as to when they might have come, and clearly we didn't model for one quite as severe as what we're seeing now. But we had scenario planning in place to be able to um, slow down and speed up our operations as conditions required. And so a lot of that work had been put in place and we were able to pull the trigger on it. And the second thing is we've got terrific world-class teams on the ground. And so if if an operation stays uh, on care and maintenance, as it's called in the mining space, for a prolonged period of time, there starts to be a dilapidation of your machines and your equipment but doing it for a few weeks at a time and running essential services during that time has meant that our operations will be able to uh, open up again uh, over the next couple of days and weeks as we move forward. 
How will mining change in in this new in this new world where issues like social distancing and um, increased personal hygiene required in all businesses? Um, but I would imagine in the mining space that would take on an additional sort of thought and uh, and plan. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it it will change, and uh, I, I'm sure I speak for Stephen as well to say there's nothing quite as fascinating to us non-engineers as to watch our engineers when they're given a problem go to work uh, because right. <laughs> over over the last several weeks they have really attacked this problem, and the the challenge to them has been singular, which is how do you restart operations which are essential to the communities in which we operate whilst being unconditional about the safety of our people, uh, Mm -hmm. making sure that they're working in the safest conditions possible. And so that will be a lot of the things that you see out in society, but probably managed in a much more focused way. So uh, that's uh, making sure that people are self-screening at home, taking their temperature every day before they arrive at a bus transport to get to work. Uh, that ensures that we're screening them through temperature checks and in the future tests before they enter the operational gate so that we can make that operation safe and clear of the virus. Uh, it means isolating and supporting those workers who present as positive and conducting contact tracing to make sure that we're not only helping our business, but helping the communities uh, to stamp out the virus. And then once they are working, it's thinking of the mine in a new way and making sure we're protecting people throughout the day. So that's not just provision of things you would expect, like personal protective equipment and face masks and gloves and aprons, but it's also making sure that as we insist that our employees hold the handrail when they walk up steps to keep themselves safe, and that's something we've asked them to do uh, for, for many years, it's making sure that as we ask them to do that, that we're constantly disinfecting handrails, for instance, or... Uh, you know, even, I mean, just to give you a, a small example, making sure we're putting rubber stoppers under the doors in cloakrooms so that they don't have to use the handle to open the door. So mm. having our engineers walk the sites and finding all of the interventions, all, all the places where risk is created for an employee and creating interventions to keep them safe. Interesting. It's, uh, I would never have thought of such um, minute details, but, but I'm, I'm also not an engineer. So <laughs> I, I view it with equal fascination. Yeah, engineers are very good when you give them a problem. They can think about it in a level of detail that would uh, uh, would be it would certainly eclipse my own focus. But you know, it's interesting because <laughs> even in China, we're learning. You know, we we can look to see how our uh, not just our teams, but how China, while not being for us a mining environment, but a retail environment, the way in which China has reopened and operates in a way which is, as I say, you know, getting back to normalcy, but in this new normal environment of of heightened safety. And, uh, you know, you won't go to an office building. Um, I was looking at our building in Shanghai the other day, which someone was videoing for me when people were arriving. And of course, you know, you see 100% wearing of masks. As people enter the, the building, there's, a, there's an automatic temperature check, a bit like you used to see it or you would see it at an airport. As you arrive, sometimes you walk through those scanners, which are taking temperature, so they're identifying issues straight away. When you get to the office in the beginning, out of lockdown, we're still on blue and green teams, so you'd have 50% of the people in one week, 50% the next. You could cleanse the building in between. It allowed you to create more social distance between the desks. 
So you do all the things you, you know, when you think through a problem of we're going to operate in this new normal and it takes right. a different uh, attitude. You know, if you go into a store, you'll see uh, the salespeople always with gloves, with masks, will have uh, the sanitizers on the door so customers can do it in and out and uh, give them the, the security that they need. These things will become normal until such time as, you know, as we see a vaccine in place. And yeah. Um, yeah. we all have to get used to them. But, you know, humans are resilient beings. And um, and I think uh, that's what we're seeing in China now. We're seeing that resiliency play through and, and people getting on with their lives, but um, in a way that takes uh, cognizance of the fact that the virus is still present. Yeah, and uh, as you say, I think um, I think it'll be those measures will be applied um, in different ways across different businesses um, and sectors within the within the pipeline. Um, I, you know, thinking about the as the manufacturers go back to work, there'll there'll also be these issues that arise for your site holders and the manufacturing community, particularly in India, which has had such a high sort of volume of workers together in a small space. Um, I, I was wondering what what communication um, De Beers has had with them, with site holders and with the manufacturing community during this crisis and, and sort of what message have you conveyed to them about market conditions, about um, what support you can give them um, to get through this period? Yeah, I mean, in a way, we're all together in the same boat in the sense that in the main centers, particularly India, you know, they're in a, a full lockdown state as well, certainly until the middle of May, uh, early May, already announced, and then we'll have to see, could well be, as you say, slightly longer than that. And so I think the key from the De Beers perspective with our site holders was right up front to recognize the severity, the short-term severity of this issue. I mean, we've never had a, an environment where commercial activity right across the whole pipeline, let alone the whole luxury goods industry, has simply come to a halt. And so, you know, our first actions with our site holders were, were around what we call 100% flexibility in, in purchasing which I think was uh, positively received at, uh, at the time by our clients. And clearly that's going to, you know, going to be the order of the day. It's going to be recognizing when demand comes back. It's going to be recognizing, as you say, the potential that they have reduced capacity for manufacturing. It's likely that that capacity, you know, as it starts, will probably be matched by, by you know, demand in, as well in America, because that will come back over time, not in an instant and in some ways, there's a positive there in the sense that um, we won't see oversupply of diamonds, A, because the mines, as David said, are, uh, have paused production in any event, and, and the capacity in India won't be what it normally is as it starts, and that should grow in line with demand, and that should be good for, in a way, for confidence in the value of, of the product that people hold in inventories in the midstream. So I think that's really their focus area, and, and ours as well, and we're we're fully aligned in keeping closely together on that uh, issue of, of, of supply yeah. and demand in the coming months. In a way, I see it as an opportunity for the industry to kind of start over again. That issue of sort of inflated inventory has been a, a hindrance, it seems, to the market in the last two to three years. And um, so, so in a way, it seems like there's that opportunity for the for the industry to realign and find a balance within in uh, between rough and polished inventory across all sectors. 
Yes, in some ways, you know, rough, rough inventory starts this year in a, in a pretty healthy place at the beginning of the year. As you know, things were getting uh, better. Rough was not in great supply in the, in the system. It's, you know, we saw Polish sales slowed down a bit first because of China and the, the importance of China as a, both a consuming, but also importantly, a, a manufacturing, jewelry manufacturing distribution center for America. So, you know, the shutdown in China had some impact on the players in India in terms of their polish, but rough remained reasonably tight. You know, the, the one uniqueness of this whole situation, it's not like a normal economic downturn where, where people building stocks, you know, as demand slows and it goes over a long period of time and then they're, they're sitting with a, you know, a substantial value of stocks with demand quite weak. This is something where just everything halted. It's like a freeze frame. Huh? It all halted exactly where it was at that point in time. Mm. And um, we never really had anything like that before. So I think, um, it, you know, the key to this will be that each sector of the, of the business moves in unison in terms of recovery. And you can see different scenarios. You know, if the retailers recover more quickly, we look at what we're seeing in China. Actually, they're coming back quite quickly. You know, you may see retail demand get ahead of the ability of the supply channel to support it. You know, alternatively, if supply comes back too quickly ahead of demand, then, you know, that puts pressure on inventory. So I think the key is to try to make sure that all sectors of the industry come back in a collaborative and um, consistent way in terms of the uh, building both capacity, supply and demand. Yeah, I mean, you, you speak about um, China coming back to, to some normalcy, but, but I, I think there is a, a sense across the industry that 2020 is, there's going to be, a, the industry is going to be smaller, that, that overall demand for, for all luxury products and all, and including diamond jewelry would have reduced compared to last year. So what are your, what are your expectations for consumer demand in, in, in 2020? How, how do you see this playing out um, and, and taking from what you're seeing in China at the moment as China reopens? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really careful not to get my crystal ball out because I've got no historical model to follow. This situation is entirely unique. So, you know, you can look at the economic scenarios. We've been studying, as you can imagine, all the different scenarios. And it depends to a great degree on how long this lockdown persists for. And that's the, the great unknown. And we don't know. To be honest, nobody does. And if the governments do, they're not telling us. So I'm not sure they do either. And so there's no point in guessing about what that might be. But um, if you look at the, it's still the core scenarios for, for consumer demand. Um, still show, and we have to be careful of some of these reports about the GDP impact, et cetera, because the GDP impact is massive now. And you're going to have, you know, a quarter or two-month period at the minimum, probably a quarter, where there is substantial unheard of reduction in GDP. But then that doesn't mean that that carries on through the other quarters. And so the whole issue is what is the rate of recovery? And that's a difficult thing to predict. Still, the majority of economists still see recovery in the Western world in terms of consumer spending uh, in, in the year 2020, you know, building back up for, the, for, for us what's the most important quarter, uh, the fourth quarter. So whether that happens or not, only you know, time will tell, and it depends hugely on the, the length of the lockdown and, and the permanence of the economic damage that might be done during this this pausing period. 
you know, when we look to China, we do see some things that give us some cause for positivism. Um, you know, what do we see as they've come out of out of their lockdown period? They're still, you know, they're not changed beings. They're still acting as consumers in the same way that they did before. They're still interested in luxury products. We're seeing particularly strong spending in the last couple of weeks by women buying diamonds for themselves. Uh, so there's definitely an element of pent-up demand that when they've given now the opportunity to go back out, they're still increasing in spending. And that's not unique to diamond jewelry. We see that we see strong brands in the luxury sector feeling that level of recovery as well. So there's still a desire to spend. And in that case, it's come back perhaps more quickly than we were originally anticipating. So we'll have to see how it carries on. I mean, there'll certainly be a bundling of marriages, you know, a lot of delayed marriages in China through this period. They're going to still likely take place this year. And that's still an opportunity that's to make up some of that uh, mm. some of that business as well. So there's some cause for optimism in, when we look at what we see in, in, in China. You know, what we don't know, again, is to what degree the American market and the Indian market, there are the two big markets, to what degree are their consumers uh, long-term or medium-term economically impacted. But, you know, there are also some positives, I think, Abby, around our product uh, and what what people want to do after an event like this. And I guess within the world of luxury goods, you know, albeit there may be less money to spend in total, uh, but within the world of luxury goods, you know, I can see a scenario where people who have come through this and out the other side you know, step back and reflect on what's important to them and, and wish to celebrate the fact that the most important things in their lives are still with them, being their, their relationships and their family. And that's good always for diamonds. And we tend to see after events more, more likely economic, but even things like, you know, uh, traumas like 9-11. We see this sort of revision to those things that have authenticity and value. And people might, might buy less but they tend to be more selective and buy better. And so, you know, with a product like diamonds that, that have the ability to be that timeless, enduring symbol, I think we've got opportunities to grab share relative to more, I call them more uh, frivolous or decorative luxury uh, mm. goods. I think hard luxury, we're seeing that in China, hard luxury performed better than soft luxury. And and I'll be the the only thing I would add to that as well is our I think our assumption is and certainly what we're seeing in China is that people that had particular connection to emotional connection to brands those brands will have stronger or greater resilience coming out the other end of this and brands that are able to forge emotional or were able to forge forge emotional connections with people brands of particular depth and specifically brands with a real social purpose, uh, we think will have uh, likely greater relevance for people into the future, uh, along with Stephen's point about our product in particular having uh, a particular resonance in this moment as we come out of this kind of global trauma. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's something that we've all noticed in our interactions online with other people and uh, sort of the messaging that us as individuals are conveying through social media it seems a, a lot more kinder and more more deep. I think in terms of that yearning for for emotional connection. And um, but Stephen, you mentioned 
what, what you were speaking about earlier is that it sort of rang a bell of, uh, you know, a few years ago. De Beers um, spoke a lot about, and I think it was uh, it was after the perhaps the the 2008 some um, downturn of, of consumers turning to fewer better things. It seems that that trend would then be repeating itself in this um, environment. Yeah, I think it's, um, and maybe it's slightly even differently. And um, it's something that David could talk to in a little bit more detail than than I. But I think that one thing that this crisis could be is in part the the sort of gasp of that concept of overconsumption and mm-hmm. the concept of more sustainable consumption, I think. And the, and the natural world itself will become something that people interrogate more. You know, when I think about the marketing messaging in this moment we're going through, you know, it's clear now that the messaging that most uh, certainly De Beers is focused on, and I think others in the industry doing their efforts as well, is, you know, at this particular moment, you ought to talk about the social good that you're doing as it relates directly to, to COVID, or probably you shouldn't talk much at all, because, you know, that's where... That's what's important uh, now, and I think, I think the leading brands uh, and the leading companies in the in the world see that they need to use their resources where they can to make a difference in this fight, and um, that's step one. Then I think though that there's that as we emerge from it, I think this issue of what role do you play as a brand in the world, or in the diamonds case, what role does the diamond play in the world, will become more more important to consumers. And I've always felt that our story is extraordinarily compelling and perhaps not either well-known or not at all known in terms of that purposeful marketing message that the, that our industry and certainly De Beers can and, and will need to tell in order to have uh, consumers engage with us. And then the third thing for me is around remembering we're in the business of dream. And I can tell you that dreams for things positive will be certainly on the minds of consumers and the ability to engage consumers in the positiveness that the diamond and the joy that the diamond brings to them and their families uh, together with the good that it does in the world will be very compelling in this new era that I think we're, we're heading into. But um, David, that's really your, your territory. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you're right, Stephen, fundamentally um, increasingly, before this crisis and certainly as we move through it and coming out of it, people care about your values. You know, they value the purchase based on the values that have brought it to market. Mm. And in this crisis, what does that mean? It means they care about what a company and a company like all companies that is under stress, um, how, how its values survive that pressure test. And for us, that means how do we treat our people? How do we keep them safe? And how do we aid our communities when they need us most? And so, you know, Avi, we already talked a little bit about how we're working to keep our people safe, how we've slowed our operations and are restarting them only once we're sure about the protocols we have in place down to the minute detail. But on the community side, we're focused, you know, really on three phases, um, helping uh, our communities prepare for the pandemic, you know, particularly in Botswana and Namibia, uh, and to some extent in South Africa, uh, it's likely that those countries have yet to see the full extent of the outbreak uh, in their geographies. And hopefully that 
uh, it won't progress in those geographies, but I think from what we've seen around the rest of the world, we have to presume it will. So we're helping them prepare uh, for the pandemic, and that's education, uh, that's sanitation, hand-washing, all the things uh, that other countries went through, supporting the emergency response as it's required through medical equipment, testing kits, PPE, provision of uh, hand sanitizers and uh, PCR machines, all those things that we read about in the news. De Beers is actively working through our supply chain to supply to the countries in which we operate, not just at our mining site, but at a national level. And then lastly, and critically, uh, we've got to be a partner in the economic recovery. Uh, and frankly, we've got to be a partner in their economic recovery, one, because it's the right thing to do, and that's the type of, type of business we are. But two, there is no diamond sector recovery if there's not a community recovery. Mm. Um, you know, our employees are the community and their health and sustainability is essential for the industry uh, to be able to restart once the recovery comes. And, you know, our view is fundamentally that's what people care about. You know, this week we'll announce uh, that in total, uh, we've so far will have committed $5 million to a Southern Africa De Beers relief fund across the, uh, Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. And one would expect that, that number to grow. And we've, you know, people have asked us why we're making that sort of commitment uh, when obviously it's a difficult time for the business and the industry. And, you know, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the essential thing to do for our business. Right. Um, and I commend you for that. The numbers doubled since your last press release out your contribution. Um, but essentially, it has, yes. in terms of the, the messaging that the industry um, should convey, it, it seems that you know, all these factors that you mentioned, um, particularly about consumers needing to relate to the values that the companies um, and, and the product um, conveys, you know, those trends were happening anyway before this crisis, but it seems that, that it's particularly because of the nature of the experience that, that the world is going through, that it's really accelerated that. You know, it doesn't sound like the, the messaging of the industry has changed. It's just amplified the message. Yeah, I think well, particularly I think... when it comes to things like the, like the natural world, the sense that we're, when it comes to, you know, issues in the environment, we're all connected. Huh? We can't disconnect each other from the impact of something like, uh, mm. you know, like climate change. And so we're, I think we all have to recognize that, um, that we've all got a role to play. We need to play that role with as much effort as we can muster because I think um, consumers will attune to it in a way in which they perhaps, you know, they were interested, but when it actually came to money, sometimes they wouldn't, sometimes they wouldn't. And uh, where I think this, I think as we move uh, out of this, the focus will come back really strongly on on what are we doing to our planet and uh, and how do we look after nature and natural things. Right. Yeah, and there's always been a question, Avi, let's face it, of whether whether it was real or not, right? Whether people believed in the commitment of the industry that those of us who are in it know to be genuine and authentic, but, you know, for those outside of it, questioned its authenticity. Yeah. And I think if this crisis does one thing, uh, hopefully it will prove its authenticity because – through the most difficult times, uh, certainly De Beers' commitment, but not just De Beers' commitment to its communities, to its people, uh, endures. And uh, that's been gratifying to see. 
Yeah, and that's a great message. I, um, I know that we, we're a bit short on time. I do want to ask one last question. And, um, and uh, Stephen, you've spoken, uh, we've all um, spoken so, so often about the millennial consumer and the sort of shift to a, an experience economy. And it seems that this, if anything, this coronavirus episode or moment has returned us to pre-experience economy. <laughs> um, you know, you can't, you can't travel anymore. You can't, you can't go on those great adventures as a, as a millennial couple. Um, so is, is there an opportunity for the industry in there to, to sort of maybe regain some, some uh, market share in the luxury space? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, no, I think it's a fascinating question. I mean, I, I do think it's about what sort of time horizon one puts on things. You know, my own view is that, you know, if we're talking about years, we're looking at three or four years from now that what it feels safe that you can travel from a health context, and obviously one's allowed to, but it's more about that feeling of, is it the right thing to do? Do I feel safe? That could take a number of years for the travel industry. I think it'll be challenging for them in this time frame. In the long run, I think once people feel secure, there is an inherent need for doing that, and I don't think it will disappear. But I think that does, in the, you know, in the short to medium term window, it does create an opportunity for us. When we look at, you know, in our surveys, to be honest, in all of our major markets, when we ask, you know, what's the biggest competitor to us, always in that top three, and, and often number one in recent years has been travel. And there's no doubt that people are spending significant amounts of money on on travel-related experiences, which they won't be able to do. And I've always felt that, um, or they won't choose to do in the same way. And I've always felt that a diamond is like, you know, we're, we're part a product and we're part experience. And the experience comes from the actual giving because it has a meaning. So it creates an experience in itself if it's given as a symbol of love. And it comes from the wearing and the feeling that one gets by wearing something, you know, over over a longer period of time than this disposable fashion world is. And those are experiential things as well. So we're always part experience and part product. And it'll be up to us to to find the you know the the right tone, the right message to you know meet the needs that those younger consumers have. But I think I agree with the premise of your question. Is, is is this has created some opportunity for us, but um, it won't happen by its own. We need to make sure we're really meeting what consumers' fundamental needs are as they exit uh, this period of first lockdown, but more importantly, that they exit the era of um, concern that, that we all justifiably will have for the next period of time. So, you know, Avi, one thing that has occurred to us is that uh, as we've watched the the virus play out across the world. The one thing that hasn't been happening is social distancing, right? People have been physically distancing, uh, sure, but uh, people have been connecting in innovative ways and being more social in some cases uh, with people than they've ever been. I've spoken to friends I haven't spoken to in 10 years Hmm. um, simply because I wasn't able to see them and then you reach out. And so there... I think there must be um, a role for our product, which is, you know, undoubtedly all about connections in this new world. And uh, as people celebrate those connections, we will likely participate in that. It'll be interesting to see 
how readily consumers will want to see, you know, your traditional marketing, you know, that that, uh, that might be inappropriate in this environment. Um, that it'll probably take some time to get back. Yeah, it, it is why it's, you're quite right. And we need to think carefully. I mean, I think that, I, I think there will be a genuine human need for some of the things that we as a product can offer. But I couldn't agree more that getting that across in the right way is going to be a hundred times more important than, than usual. It is why I think in the current environment, one really needs to focus simply on the role you're playing to help with COVID. We see, you know, on, on our posts about the sort of things we're doing in Southern Africa, we see overwhelming, I mean, I say overwhelming, like 100% overwhelming positive response through our social media um, support. So people now, what do they want to see? They want to see their companies making a difference. And again, I think that that will be an important part of what you need to keep telling people to get them to engage with you uh, as we exit as, uh, as well. I think it'll shift from COVID to, to the broader area of what are we all doing, and that will become part of the way in which uh, consumers are then willing to listen to, you know, the rest of your message because they see that they take it on board in the context of the values that you clearly demonstrated and demonstrating through this. Um, great. Well, uh, it's a, it's an, it's a, it's an appropriate message, I think. And I agree. Uh, people want to see that companies and individuals are are making that contribution. So I commend you for your contribution. Thank you very much for for your time. I appreciate that you're joining us today. Yeah, I just guess I mean, just I think leave everyone with the thought that you know we need to. We need to maintain our positivism and we need to maintain our confidence in our product and what it means to people and the value that it has. And while we might not have all been in a global lockdown before, we've been through quite a lot of traumas in the long history of this century and we've always come out the other side. So people should, uh, even when it seems difficult, you know, we must maintain our optimism and I think there's good grounds for it with the product that we sell. Yeah, we'll see you on the other side and we'll walk with you through it. I look forward to that. And uh, it's, um, I, I, I agree. I think we have a lot to be optimistic for. And, um, and there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity at this, uh, amid all the challenges that we're facing. So um, we'll take that message and uh, build on it. Stephen and David, thank you very much again for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you and, and having a drink and, and rem- <laughs> yeah. remembering, rem- sharing more stories. Yeah. Make mine a vodka martini. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Avi. Stay safe. You Bye-bye too. Now. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>